Support for this podcast comes from Kinney Drugs, now celebrating 120 years of providing local communities with medications, advice, and healthcare products and services. Kinney pharmacists administer all CDC-recommended vaccines to those age 18 and older, including influenza, pneumonia, HPV, tetanus, pertussis and diphtheria, measles, mumps and rubella, chickenpox, and hepatitis A and B. Kinney pharmacists will be administering RSV vaccinations to those 60 years of age and older. Kinney Drugs is 100% employee-owned and locally committed since 1903. Learn more at kinneydrugs.com. You know, you think about compounding economic distress and decline with unemployment, with the war on drugs, with underfunded schools. It creates a toxic mix of, and, and has created a, a, a condition of great suffering and inequality. Welcome to the Vermont Conversation. I'm David Goodman. Philadelphia is synonymous with liberty and possibility. It is known as the place where the U.S. Constitution and the Declaration of Independence were signed. But there's a lesser known side to Philadelphia. It is the poorest large city in America, and Kensington is its poorest neighborhood, a place where 18th birthday celebrations are not rites of passage, but miracles. That's the story told by sociologist Nikhil Goyal, who until this spring was a senior policy advisor on education and children to Senator Bernie Sanders. Goyle has a new book, Live to See the Day, Coming of Age in American Poverty, in which he follows three Puerto Rican children growing up in Kensington. This coming-of-age story is marked by violence, drugs, homelessness, and the fallout from wrenching poverty. Bill McKibben has called the book an instant classic. As an aide to Bernie Sanders, Goyle helped develop education, child care, and child tax credit legislation, as well as tuition-free college program for incarcerated people and correctional workers in Vermont. He's written for the New York Times, Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, and other publications. This fall, Goyle will be a lecturer in sociology at the University of Vermont. Nikhil Goyal, welcome to the Vermont Conversation. Thanks for having me. I want to start by just having you say a little bit about your connection to Vermont. I know you grew up on Long Island. How did you make your way to Vermont? So my first time in Vermont was when I started as an undergraduate student at uh, a little college named Goddard College in Plainfield. Um, I had been interested in progressive education for uh, quite some time, and uh, a number of educators had recommended that I look into Goddard um, as a potential option for higher education and thought it might be a good fit. Um, and uh, uh, went to Goddard, graduate there uh, in 2016, um, and then have been in and out of Vermont since then, uh, worked for Senator Bernie Sanders um, in from 2021 to 2023. Um, and on his staff in Washington, D.C., um, and came up to Vermont uh, occasionally. You were the subject of a Forbes magazine article in 2012 that was headlined, and this 17-year-old save America's education system. <laughs> Tell me how that came about and how your passion for education got started. Sure. So I, you know, I grew up on Long Island, as you mentioned. Uh, grew up in a town called Hicksville, um, and went to went to Bethpage schools. You know, a pretty middle class uh, school district. Um, and in high school, my my parents and my my family and I will moved to Sayasa, which was a much uh, wealthier, a very high ranking school district where a lot of kids went on to Ivy League institutions. And very quickly, I became dissatisfied with the kind of pressure cooker school system uh, where the primary goal of education, it seemed, was to get good grades and test scores um, and to pad your you know, college applications and ultimately go into a you know, well-off prestigious college, college or university. And I began, began to become very demoralized by that kind of system of education that was, frankly, I thought, very narrow-minded. 
Um, I was very interested in speech and debate, and uh, I ran on the cross-country team and was very interested in politics and current affairs. And uh, I had felt that I was enjoying myself and much more engaged in my learning uh, in those extracurricular activities than anything that was happening in, in the school day. Um, I became very disengaged and, and bored by traditional instruction and and the kind of hyper-competitive nature of a school like Syosset. And I eventually uh, began to conduct research and um, about the American school system, reached out to experts and, and educators and students and people around the country to understand some of the problems with the system and then potential solutions to transform it and humanize schools. Um, and so when I was in high school, I decided to you know, work on this uh, project of creating a book uh, that came out around that time in, in uh, 2012, which was a compilation of interviews I had done and, and my various musings on American public education. Um, and uh, so that, that, that led to the, the Forbes article that you had mentioned um, at the time. And uh, it, it, it's, it's quite uh, it's quite funny and, and 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 fascinating for me to reflect upon that because it's you know uh, it's been more than a decade since that and, and kind of my uh, evolution and, and thoughts and and life experiences since then uh, have you know it's been fascinating to think about where I was back then. Well, when I saw about your you know first of all an article about you in Forbes at age seventeen in the normal scheme of things would have been um, inserted into your common application and you would have then been <laughs> ushered on to, uh, you know, a prestigious university somewhere, big, uh, you know, brand name. So the decision to go to Goddard, what do you feel, you know, a lot of Vermonters hear about Goddard or maybe they don't really know exactly what it is or what its current status is. Cause it's gone through a lot of changes. Um, Talk about what Goddard was for you. Sure. You know, I I think my interest in Goddard, uh, it's it drew from a passion and a commitment to treating the real world as a classroom. That there shouldn't be this separation between what happens in the classroom, what happens in the community. Um, and I think Goddard embodies that vision of of city as classroom. Um, more so than I think many institutions. Um, it was started by a disciple of John Dewey, um, uh, Royce uh, Royce Pitkin, um, in the early 20th century. Um, and back in the day, it was one of the first experimental colleges uh, in the country. Um, you know, a lot of people will associate Goddard with the kind of cultural movement and the hip and the hippies in the 60s, among other uh, folks that were coming to Vermont. Um, at that time, um, and and it it still wedded to some of those that ethos and that those principles, but I think it has tried to uh, adapt and modify itself for at least the twenty first century and in a world where uh, a college degree is is a prerequisite, quote unquote, for for success. Um, and so they've had to adapt to to that. And and you know I think higher education uh, has been under a great crisis in Goddard. Um, has has not been absolved from that in terms of uh, declining enrollments, financial troubles, um, and 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 the question of how do you provide a real world relevant learning experience at a time when ROI, the return on investment, and uh, is a, is a top demand for a lot of students going to to college. And so I went to I, you know I was very fortunate to have worked very closely with. Um, an advisor named uh, Bobby Buchanan, um, who had been at Goddard for, for decades. Um, and I compare the experience actually very similarly to graduate school, where I worked very closely with uh, a group of uh, several advisors in crafting my own curriculum and learning experiences uh, based on my interests and passions and on, on curricular requirements. And, and this was at University of Cambridge in England, your graduate yes, school, yeah. Yes, later on. And I, uh, a, a very traditional place. <laughs> uh, yes, and and one that my parents were very happy <laughs> to uh, uh, to that I was I was going to um, because you know they you know the Indian Indian uh, uh, immigrant parents who came to this country in the eighties and nineties uh, and Cambridge was a uh, you know pretty um, uh, it it just it's seen as it's a very the, prestigious. It is the pinnacle of the pinnacle, of right? certainly British colonial education. <laughs> yeah, exactly, and. and 
you know, compared to Goddard College, which, you know, folks in India and elsewhere may not know of, uh, they were very uh, happy that I was, you know, going to a, 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 a quote, quote unquote, brand name school. Um, so I think Goddard prepared me for that, the self-directed learning, uh, the ability to create a curriculum um, and and make my way through the world. Uh, I think those qualities and principles were very helpful in graduate school because I was already well-equipped to work closely with an advisor and come up with a research project and and uh, bring it to fruition. You mentioned your parents. Tell me a little bit about them and how their story, as you, as you say, they were immigrants, um, kind of influence, has influenced your career trajectory. And this is all in a way of getting us to why you became so fascinated by the topic of poverty in America. Sure. Yeah, you know, my my parents came to this country in the late 80s, early 90s. Um, and, you know, I always try to remind folks that the reason they were able to, to immigrate here was in 1965, President Lyndon B. Johnson um, signed the Hart Seller Immigration Act, um, which which ended the racist nationality quotas um, that had been in operation for, for decades in this country. Um, and those quotas had barred immigration um, from... Uh, Asia and Africa and many other uh, countries. Um, and because of that law, uh, my parents and, and millions of other uh, immigrants were able to come to this country and you know make a, a good life for themselves and, and their children. Um, and that was because of the, the great courage of the civil rights movement. And I think my life in this country and all the work that I've been able to do is a, is a, um, would not be possible without that courage and, and the sacrifices that previous generations made. Um, and I think that guides a lot of my work. And, you know, my parents, uh, um, you know, are part of that generation of, of folks who were directly impacted by public policy. Um, and so going, you know, looking at an issue like poverty and inequality, and then my later work in, in public policy, um, to me, it's a, my, my, the way I treat my work, or at least frame it, is that I'm trying to support the next generation of Americans um, with a agenda that will uplift their lives and provide them with basic dignity and necessities. Um, and, you know, I, I, when I was younger, I went, we often would go to India on, on summer vacation and I would see the desperate poverty uh, on the streets of Calcutta and Delhi. Um, and, you know, growing up on Long Island, you know, relatively well off, um, I never saw that uh, in the United States. I never seen such dire desperation, um, at least in a tangible way. Um, and and you know that informed my thinking and my worldview. But it was only until later on, um, you know, after high school and college and then beyond, where I began to really be interested and, and obsessed with the questions of political economy and, and inequality uh, in a nation as rich as ours. Um, and you know, in 2015. Um, I was interested in looking at the high school dropout crisis, uh, but not from an angle that's typically considered in policy debates where, you know, there tends to be a blame the victim narrative. Here are these kids who dropped out. They must be lazy and mischievous and disobedient and, and pathological. They must have lots of social and social issues and problems. I was interested to look at the structural context and dimensions of the dropout crisis and to particularly look at political economy uh, as an underpinning to why young people may leave school. Um, and so I um, I ended up uh, reaching out to a friend of mine uh, who runs Big Picture Learning, uh, Andrew Frischman, uh, and he I asked him to su suggest a, a number of schools uh, for, for me to visit. Um, uh, in the country. And he suggested I, I attend, uh, I spent some time at El Centro de Estudiantes, an alternative last chance high school uh, in Philadelphia that works with kids who had dropped out. Um, and I what, came to- what is, a, what is a last chance high school? So it's a, a last chance high school, at least in Philadelphia, there's dozens, not maybe not dozens, but there's a number of alternative schools uh, that are designed to re-engage young people who had dropped out or I would say pushed out um, and put them on a path to getting a high school diploma. So a number of the students at El Centro had been to two, three or four 
schools before coming there. And so this was the last, essentially the last chance they had before they would, you know, become dropouts for, for, for the, uh, the short-term future, for the future. Um, and uh, so I ended up spending some time at the school. I thought I was going to write a story, you know, interview some kids uh, and, uh, you know, talk to some parents and teachers and, you know, spend some time in the community. And, and that was going to be it. But as I began to conduct these interviews, as I beca- began to become friends with a lot of the students, they showed me their neighborhood. They introduced me to their parents and their abuelos and abuelas and tios and tias and and family members. Um, they showed me the 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 drug trading in Kensington and the uh, and the poverty um, and and the issues of of criminalization and how that was affecting their lives. Um, I knew that I couldn't just parachute into Kensington and spend a few days and then uh, and think this was enough. Um, and well, let's let's just take a moment to talk about what and where Kensington is. Um, I visited Kensington in June for the first time. It's a neighborhood of Philadelphia. Um, and it's pretty shocking to walk around. There is an open air, you know, it's been described as an open air drug market. Um, there are people struggling with substance use uh, disorder in the parks, you know, passed out. I mean, this is what I observed. And it's a community where what I saw were these beautiful buildings that were just shattered. Homes, factories, shuttered, shattered, um, which, of course, led me to wonder and ask people, what happened here? So talk about what happened to this place that was once an industrial sort of beating heart of Philadelphia and is now, you know, a symbol of American urban decline and decay. Sure. You know, Kensington uh, was once the site of the world's largest and most diverse textile industry in the 19th and 20th centuries. Um, It was a place where you had massive textile uh, factories and and businesses pumping out millions of yard you know yards of 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 carpets and and upholsteries and and other woolen goods um, you know on almost every block of the neighborhood there was some uh, industrial activity um, ongoing um, and if you wanted a job you could you know walk out walk out your door and you could probably find a job uh, within you know within by the end of the day. Um, you know, there was there was a sense of, of you know, a sense of economic security for uh, a number of folks. You know, middle class union jobs um, that would provide you with um, the basic necessities of life. Um, and it was, you know, at, at the time, at least uh, before the 1950s, it was mostly white working class. Um, and, it, you know, it was, as you mentioned, it was an industrial powerhouse. Uh, it was a place where uh where, where business was thriving for a significant period of time. And then eventually, uh, as, as you point out, it, it became a, a symbol of, of urban decay and, and, and decline, uh, the period of deindustrialization, um, of the introduction of the war on drugs, of the, uh, the attacks on urban cities by the Reagan administration in the 1980s. Uh, there was a series of political and economic decisions and policies that contributed to the downfall of Kensington. Um, you know, I, I, one of the things that I looked at in the book, uh, or was a guiding principle, was the Puerto Rican migration. You know, Puerto Ricans began to come to the uh, Kensington in the 1950s and 60s. It was the third most popular destination uh, in the country, uh, from New York to Chicago, then then Philadelphia, and they arrived uh, in a city that was uh, increasingly shedding jobs. You know, in, ni- in the 1950s, uh, you know, most people were working in manufacturing and, and that slumped dramatically by the 1980s and 90s. Um, you know, I think the decline in manufacturing in particular was due to a number of uh, uh, challenges. You know, you had the, the fact that there was competition from other textile uh, businesses in the low wage, non-unionized South, uh, there was foreign competition. Um, there was uh, the issue that 
the many factories in Philadelphia were producing very specialized goods. And so they were under threat, as historians point out, from producers that produce standardized goods more efficiently. Um, and then, you know, you have the, uh, you know, you had on top of that, then the war on drugs, uh, the crack cocaine epidemic that hit American cities like a tornado in the, in the 1980s, um, that, you know, you had previously, you could get a job, a decent job that would provide you with security for the long haul. And now that was slowly going away and replaced by a flood, you know, the, the fledgling drug economy that provided none of those basic necessities, whether it was good wages or pensions or healthcare. Um, and, and, you know, and, and for folks who didn't have, say, a college degree or even a high school diploma, um, there were very few jobs uh, available for them except in the service industry or in the drug trade. Um, and so putting that all together, you know, you think about compounding economic distress and decline with unemployment, with the war on drugs, with underfunded schools, it creates a toxic mix of, and, and has created a, a, a condition of great suffering and inequality. Um, and, you know, if anybody spends time in, in Philadelphia, you will, you will notice uh, the great differences of, of life experiences across neighborhood and across space. Um, you know, it, it is very jarring to me to spend time in, say, Center City um, and, uh, you know, and the downtown parts of the city where there's skyscrapers and, and, uh, and major corporations set up there. And you take the L, not even 10, 15 minutes up to Kensington, and you're in the poorest large, uh, you're, you're in the poorest neighborhood of the city, in the poorest, uh, in the uh, poorest large city in America, uh, and the site of the largest open air drug market um, on the East Coast. Um, it well, is it just is- just that comment, uh, you know, when people think of Philadelphia, and if they're tourists, they've been to Independence Hall, this is the seat of American independence. It's where the Declaration of Independence and, and Constitution were signed. It's where the Liberty Bell hangs. What they see is a very affluent, um, enticing place. But you, as you point out, it is the poorest big city in America. It's the most unequal city in America. How can these two exist side by side, this gleaming magnet for visitors and this underbelly that is truly shocking to see this open air drug market yeah it, it is is incredible to put those two images side by side and, and, and you know at the beginning of the book i i tried to do that by by explaining the journeys i would make from society hill you know very rich leafy neighborhood downtown and taking the bus from there to Kensington. And as, you know, as I would go stay on that bus minute after minute, the life expectancy would drop. Like, just think about that. Like the life expectancy would, would increasingly drop as they started in Society Hill. Like you had babies who were born in Society Hill expected to live to the age of 87. And then you had kids, babies just a few miles away in Kensington expected to live only to 71. I mean, the gap of that is just astonishing to me. Um, and that's, you know, I, I would also just point out that that is not um, simply a, a fact of Kensington. That is a, a situation that exists across America um, where you have great spatial inequality uh, in neighborhoods. Um, and, and, I, and, and that's, you know, and you ask the question around how did that come about? Where, why is that exist. Um, and I think it's, it's, it's due to a number of, uh, n- due to a number of systems at play. Um, we've had 40 years, uh, 40, 50 years of, of neoliberal economic policy where we've restructured our state and our society in favor of what, what people call market fundamentalism, where we've argued and we believe that, uh, you know, people should be, you know, have to pull themselves up by their bootstraps that the state is not here to provide you with basic economic uh, dignity and, and necessities, that you are here as an individual in an, atomi- an atomized way, uh, and you must, find, you, you must find your way in, in our capitalistic society. Um, and I think 
if you look at the the retrenchment of social welfare, the decline of of uh, funding and resources for social welfare, whether it's from housing to healthcare to education to um, to other sectors, uh, that has gone down precipitously um, over the past 40 years. There's been a privatization of basic public goods. Um, you know, I talk a lot about the privatization of public education uh, in the city of Philadelphia, how they've you know, gone from literally selling off you know, dozens of schools to Edison Schools, a, a for-profit company in the early 2000s, to shuttering 23 public schools in 2013, to an ongoing process of charterization where they've, where now almost 40% of kids in Philadelphia uh, attend charter schools or, or, or cyber charter schools. You know, this, this regime of, of neoliberalism, how it's had its tentacles in various sectors of our society um, has produced a great level of inequality and suffering. And I think Kensington is perhaps one of the most, uh, is one of the greatest physical manifestations of that um, in America today. You, your new book, Live to See the Day, profiles three Puerto Rican young people. Introduce us to them. So I met Ryan Karem and Giancarlos when they uh, first started attending El Centro the estudiantes, you know, they had all, um, they all have very unique stories in and of itself. And I'll give you, a, you know, a brief snapshot of their lives. Um, you know, Ryan, uh, you know, grew up in North Philadelphia, um, was raised by a single mother uh, during the period of, of welfare reform, uh, he and his twin brother. Um, and I, you know, trace his life all the way from middle school when he started a fire in a trash can and was sent to juvenile detention and an alternative disciplinary school um, to his experience uh, in, in high school at El Centro, dropping out, coming back, um, dealing with of, uh, the criminal justice system as an adult, and then his experience as a, as a uh, becoming a father. Um, you know, his, his story is just harrowing because I think it, it illustrates uh, the complexities and the nuances of, uh, of various systems at play from juvenile justice to um, to the adult system, uh, to housing insecurity, among other uh, factors. Uh, then you have Karem, um, who is also raised by a single mother. Uh, you know, dealt with um, uh, addictions and housing insecurity and, and a number of other challenges with deep, deep poverty. Uh, and then eventually coming out to his uh, Pentecostal Christian mother, who ultimately rejects him. Um, and then Giancarlos, I, I I think he's a great figure in the in the process of describing educational privatization um, as an activist against some of those policies uh, in Philadelphia. Um, so I think all three illustrate various uh, conditions in the city and provide a history and accounting of the past um, 20 years in, in, in Kensington. Nikhil, you followed these three young Puerto Rican uh, young men around from, from childhood to graduating from high school. What is something that you learned from them about what it took for them to survive? You you write at one point that getting to an 18th birthday, you say their story is one of survival, where 18th birthday celebrations are not rites of passage, but miracles. It is the story of a social contract in tatters. I don't think that people fully understand what you're saying there why it is a miracle for an 18-year-old, particularly young man of color, to gra A, to graduate high school, B, to graduate high school with a diploma instead of a police record. Explain what you saw in the lives of the three young men who you followed. You know, the title of the book, Live to See the Day, comes or is inspired by conversations I would have, in particular with Ryan, um, where on on numerous occasions, he would describe to me the feeling that he would have when he was 15, 16 years old, where he didn't think he would even make it to the age of 18. You know, his his father uh, died relatively young. Uh, he had been incarcerated uh, numerous times, and he actually got incarcerated a few, you know, shortly after Ryan and his twin brother uh, were born. Um, and so the and 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 a new, and, a, and there was another conversation I had with. Um, 
a young man in 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 Philadelphia uh, when I wished him happy birthday, um, and he told me, um, "I'm glad I made it another year." Like, which you know, I I just was so just taken aback by by that comment. I'm glad I made it another year, um, as though they didn't realize or have a idea that what was what life could be in store for them uh, in their late late uh, teens or early twenties. Um, and I just want to cut away. Uh, you and I both are graduates of public high schools on Long Island. I can't imagine a classmate of mine saying that. Yeah. That I'm glad I made it another year. Of course, yeah. we made it another year. Right. Of course. And and I think uh, the reason for that the um, is there's a couple of them. One is in particular is the epidemic of gun violence. Um, you know, young black and brown men. Um, across this country have been the, the greatest victims of uh, of the explosion of gun violence over the past several decades. Um, and that's not new. I mean, it, it is, you know, if you look at the crack cocaine epidemic and the violence associated with the drug trade at the time um, and the explosion of, of uh, homicide rates in the 80s and early 90s, um, that affected most particularly and most poignantly uh, that demographic. Um, and so for these young people, um, even if they are not necessarily involved in, say, criminal behavior, just walking down the street, getting hit by a stray bullet is a real prospect in their daily lives. Um, and, and I think that is, you know, it, it, it takes a toll on your psyche as an individual that if you can't, you know, kids, I, I would talk to, you know, there's a young person I talked to where he just going to the corner store, the, what they call the poppy store in, in Philadelphia. Um, was was a risk in and of itself. He would have to his daughter, uh, his, you know, when he, when his daughter was born, he had to put up bulletproof uh, windows outside her outside her bedroom because she, he he there was there were there had been erratic shootings in the neighborhood, uh, and he you know he was fearful that she would be struck by a stray bullet. Uh, so the 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 issue of of gun violence um, is something that has plagued Philadelphia for a number of years. And the pandemic, unfortunately, um, has uh, seen a massive escalation in that violence. Where Philadelphia, at one point, had the, the most number of homicides uh, of any large city per capita uh, in the United States, um, and I think that, you know a large part of that was uh, due to the fact that schools, libraries, recreation centers, other public institutions that keep people intact, that give people stability and, and keep the social fabric of communities intact, what, they were all closed down. Um, and I think when you look at a, when you have disinvestment of public goods and institutions, that naturally gives rise to violence. Um, and I think that's, that's, to me, that explains a large part of what's happening uh, in Kensington and many other neighborhoods in this city with, with great levels of violence. Another element at play, and we see it especially in the story of Ryan Rivera, is the school-to-prison pipeline, the phenomenon where what is routine school discipline handled by a principal in more affluent schools is criminalized, and you have school resource officers. And in Ryan's case, as you mentioned, he lit a fire in a trash can in middle school. And he is marched to the principal's office, rightly so, uh, most parents would think. <laughs> Only he's then handed off to Philadelphia cops. And he has a criminal record. He's not just suspended. He's not just the normal academic sanctions. Talk about the school-to-prison pipeline and how it impacts the lives of these young people. Sure. Um, you know, the... The situation uh, concerning the criminalization of, of youth in Philadelphia uh, really draws back to uh, a historical period of the you know mid 1990s to the early 2000s. Um, you know there was a great interest uh, or fascination with the urban uh, the the youth urban uh, crime issue and crisis that a lot of policymakers had been warning of, um, and a series of policies were enacted during that time, all the way from uh, investment in school resource officers, metal detectors, punitive zero tolerance, disciplinary methods, anything to so quote unquote curb that violence. 
Um, and in Philadelphia, uh, in particular, which has long been plagued by you know underachievement and issues of student violence, um, has been kind of a guinea pig uh, in the zero tolerance uh, regime. Um, you know, Ryan started this fire uh, in a trash can in middle school, gets arrested, gets sent to juvenile detention, um, and eventually. Uh, the school district expels him and gets sends him to an alternative disciplinary school called Community Education Partners. Um, the, the Philadelphia schools, um, when Paul Vallis became the superintendent uh, in the early 2000s, began giving contracts to to disciplinary school providers to manage and essentially warehouse uh, this this troubled youth population. Um, and this was a you know for profit company. Uh, that had been, you know, rife with allegations of abuse and mismanagement of kids and of finances. Um, and Ryan was sent to CEP, uh, a very dehumanizing uh, learning environment, uh, which I would compare it to a mini uh, prison. Uh, the kids, you know, had to wear uniforms. They walked with their hands behind their backs. They were confined to classrooms where they couldn't move until, you know, for the entirety of the day. They started in the classroom at the morning and they didn't leave until the end of the day um, where there was constant fighting um, and and uh, um, and punishment by uh, teachers and and security guards. You know, it was a uh, there was such such uh, such great levels of of criminalization that no white middle class kid or parent would ever tolerate uh, for themselves or their child. Um, and I think. Uh, the what, what we've seen uh, is the effects of the zero tolerance generation uh, and what that has done to graduation rates, to attendance, to educational achievement and, and engagement with school. And those kids, they all ended up, many of them ended up in El Centro. They were victims of those policies and they were they were thrown into El Centro, um, which I write about, had a very different disciplinary approach rooted in restorative justice um, as opposed to suspending and expelling kids. Um, and so I think the, I, I try to trace that uh, period of time and provide a blueprint through the lens of El Centro uh, of a different way of caring for and addressing um, youth violence and-, and um, and what does that uh, what are what does that blueprint look like? You saw it up close, and what difference it can make. Talk about it. Sure. So El Centro, uh, when I started going there, it didn't have uh, metal detectors, it didn't have school resource officers, um, it didn't have uniforms. Um, the kids start their days in restorative circles where they have to talk about how they're feeling, what's on their mind, what are you know what are their goals and their aspirations. Um, they created a very intimate, caring learning environment. Um, and I've been to you know dozens of schools around the country. And I can usually tell pretty quickly uh, as, a, as a human being, if I feel safe and respected in that environment, even as an outsider. And I could tell very quickly that was the case at El Centro because the kids call, you know, call their teachers by their first names. There's a sense of community, uh, a positive and responsive school climate. Um, I think all of those ingredients um, are, are, you know, are, are, ones that I think many schools should try to to emulate, uh, where they treat children not as potential prisoners or misbehaving youth, but as human beings who have rights and 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 deserve freedom and, and autonomy in the classroom. And if you look at the disciplinary issues at El Centro, they pale in comparison to other urban districts, uh, urban schools in Philadelphia and, and elsewhere. Um, there are just a handful of fights each year. Um, when when kids do engage in mischief or or other activities, uh, there's peer mediation. There's there's there are resiliency specialists on staff to manage and help them uh, through that process. You know, every kid is known by at least one adult in that building, and I think that builds a sense of trust and a sense of respect uh, that uh, is should be at the core of any educational. Uh, experience. You, know, you describe it as a last chance. It strikes me for many of these kids, it was a first chance to 
live as human beings, the whole notion of zero tolerance, um, you know, for any parent listening, you know, can you imagine a zero tolerance approach to raising kids? I mean, parenting and raising healthy human beings is about tolerance. It's about second chances. Um, so the three, um, young people you profiled graduated high school in 2016. It's seven years later. I don't want to have a spoiler to your book, but could you (laughs) share what they're doing and how they're doing now? Sure. So um, Ryan, uh, at the end of the book, I talk about how Ryan eventually lands a job with uh, Judge Rayford Means as his personal assistant. Um, He had first met uh, Judge Means in a courtroom uh, when his stepfather uh, was uh, had caught a drug case and Judge Means was overseeing his case. And he felt that he had provided, um, he had treated George, his stepfather, with great humanity and respect. Uh, and then he eventually, uh, the great story is that he eventually goes to El Centro. Um, and as part of El Centro's mission, they want to make sure that kids are gaining real world experiences and social capital. So they have them engage in internships two days a week um, in the community at large. And so Ryan ends up getting an internship with Judge Means uh, in, in his courtroom. Um, and that eventually leads to him getting this, this job um, after graduating high school. Um, and so Ryan is you know, doing incredibly well. He's, he, he has been working for Judge Means. He's also a youth mentor, working with many of the kids that are on the same uh, predicament as he was, was in middle school. Um, Karem uh, uh, has, has in, now his, his name is Karem, previously Emmanuel, uses they, them pronouns, um, is tried to uh, try community college for a couple semesters. Uh, the, the, the issues of trying to afford rent uh, was, uh, was something that eventually led him to leaving uh, community college and going to the labor market. Um, and today they are actually a staff member at El Centro um, in their new location. Uh, in North Philadelphia, um, so that you know things things come about full circle sometimes. Um, and finally, Giancarlos recently had um, his second child, um, and he's mostly working um, uh, lower wage service jobs at the moment. Um, and um, it's probably the most economically precarious of the three. You know, having to you know raise a family uh, with his partner. Um, and and going through all the tribulations of that life brings, um, but you know all three of them, it is just incredible to watch uh, their their growth and and their upbringing over the past nearly a decade now, um, and all that they've had to overcome, and frankly struggles that no child should have to endure um, in a country like ours. Um, that to me is something that I I think is is um, is a great. Um, is a great disservice that we do to the kids of, of Kensington and beyond. You were writing this book while you had a pretty demanding job as the senior policy advisor for education and children to Senator Bernie Sanders. Uh, talk about how you came to work for, for Bernie and um, what your work was for him and perhaps something that you feel particularly proud of that you accomplished during your time with him. So I had been a volunteer for uh, the Sanders presidential campaigns from 2016, and then in 2020 as well. I also helped uh, advise on the public education platform for the campaign at the time. Um, and when I finished my PhD uh, in early 2021, um, I was thinking about: Should I go in the academic job market? Should I? Uh, should I, you know, go into public service? And I got a call from the senator's chief of staff um, saying that somebody recommended me for uh, the position to lead his um, education policy work uh, because his policy advisor uh, was leaving. Um, and I uh, could not pass up that opportunity. I had uh, you know, been a great admirer of the senator and his, and his work at the Senate for uh, many years. And uh, it was at a time when President Biden had just come into office and there was this moment uh, that many folks felt um, where the stars had aligned. We had a trifecta and the House, the Senate and the presidency. And, and, and even with a slim majority, the potential to enact a bold transformative agenda. Um, 
and and of many policy that had been on the back burner burner for for numbers of years. Um, and so the, my first day at the Senate was the day the American Rescue Plan was uh, passed uh, uh, by the Senate. Um, and I, you know, from there on out, we worked very closely with the Biden administration on the uh, Build Back Better bill, um, on uh, a number of other initiatives. Unfortunately, to my great horror and to many's, to many others, uh, that bill was chopped up and only a, a portion of it uh, ultimately became law. Um, and it was very, I, I took, for me, having spent time in Kensington and, and some of the poorest neighborhoods in this country, I took those experiences with me and 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 it was always something that was a uh, a framing when I did my policy work. How would this affect Ryan and and Giancarlos and Emmanuel uh, and 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 Karem and, and Yvette and Marta and and Rainey? Um, how would this affect those kids' lives? Um, that was something that always stuck with me uh, because I knew that the expanded child tax credit would lift those kids out of poverty uh, and and their families. I knew that affordable childcare would have been able to uh, allow more teenage mothers and, and fathers to stay in school and 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 also um, have ensured that their kids were getting decent care during the day. Um, I knew that tuition-free public college would encourage many low-income kids of color uh, and first-generation uh, students to think about college for the first time. Um, so it was very, uh, I was incredibly distraught when Senator Manchin uh, decided to pull his support for the bill um, you know, around Christmas Eve, 2021. Um, and, but, you know, I think we showed that, that, that public policy um, can, has the potential to change people's lives um, if you have the, the sufficient political will. So I'm incredibly proud of the work we did those, um, during that time on student debt cancellation, um, on earmark projects. You know, one of the things I'm most proud of is the fact that Vermont, um, uh, it now has uh, the Vermont Prison Education Program through the Community College of Vermont, um, which will provide a tuition-free community college education to incarcerated students and correctional staff in the Vermont prisons. It was one of the projects I worked on very closely with Senator Sanders. Um, and I you know, taught in prison in New York in the past and, and thought we should have something similar in Vermont to address recidivism and educational inequality. Um, so I, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of the, my legacy at, at the Senate and the, uh, and the work that we were able to accomplish in the, in the face of, of great odds and of great opposition from corporate interests, from lobbyists, from Republicans and from, uh, corporate Democrats. Um, and so I, you know, it, it has been, you know, great, great pleasure to, to have been in that role. I'm curious your perspective, what you can share seeing Senator Sanders operate in what uh, can be a very adversarial environment, um, your sense of where and how he is able to be effective. Um, how have you seen him be able to advance progressive ideas? Um, you know, a lot of people said that when when Joe Biden won in 2020, it was kind of the triumph of the Sanders agenda because right. Biden has really advanced many of the things that Bernie proposed. Um, talk about that dynamic of, you know, Bernie proposes something, it's it's mocked, it's dismissed. And then suddenly, you know, slowly we see it creep back in, in the form of, you know, uh, the Inflation Reduction Act, things like that. Um, I'm curious your perspective on that. Sure. It's remarkable to think about you know, the senator's directory over the past several decades and, you know, being in the wilderness for a number of years, being mocked and belittled um, in the 80s and 90s and even the early 2000s. Um, I think the what what is what allowed the senator's ideas to become popularized and become part of the mainstream were uh, were a number of things. One was the power of social movements. Um, I don't think you would have seen um, Build Back Better at least the components of that agenda, if it weren't for Occupy Wall Street, if it weren't for Fight for 15, the Black Lives Matter movement. Um, I think the social movements gave us the language to talk about exploitation and poverty and inequality in ways that hadn't been discussed in America for, for many decades. Um, I think the financial crisis um, exposed how hollow and how distorted 
or neoliberal cap capitalism um, system uh, existed. Um, I think, and then obviously the pandemic uh, as well, exposing the precarity uh, and the la and the failings of the social safety net um, in such gruesome ways of people, you know, lining up at food banks, people dying in, in hospitals, um, people dying on the streets because of lack of health care. Uh, I think there are those, all that together, uh, uh, when we arrived at 2021 in that, in that period, it, it had culminated for us to, to do something big and bold. Um, I think what, what, what Senator Sanders has uh, tried to accomplish is always push the overturn window a little bit further and further. Uh, it may not mean that we're going to get everything that we want, but it. But we're going to get. A, we're we're going to try to get uh, a substantial piece of the pie. Um, I was very happy that the Biden administration worked um, hand in hand with us, um, whether it was on tuition free uh, community college or on student debt cancellation or on child care. Um, you know, I think and they appreciate the power of of Bernie's movement. And his ideas, and that his and the, that these ideas finally uh, their, their time had come for for them to to be operate to exist in in this country. Um, and you know he's now he was the when I was there uh, at first he was the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee, which gave him a very powerful perch to oversee the reconciliation legislation process. And then more recently, in the past couple months, he has become the chair chairman of the. Senate Health, Education, Labor, and Pensions Committee, which I think is the culmination of his, of his life's work and his greatest interests. Um, so I, I think he, uh, you know, I, I would he, I think he'd prefer a, a trifecta and and the ability to put get legislation into to law. I know it can be extremely frustrating, but I'm I'm always amazed by his persistence, by uh, by the fact that he has remained in the struggle in the face of daunting obstacles and and, strugg and, and struggles from the, the people on top. Well, Nikhil Goyal, I want to thank you for joining us this week on the Vermont Conversation. Thank you so much for having me. Nikhil Goyal is a former senior policy advisor for Senator Bernie Sanders. His new book is Live to See the Day, Coming of Age in American Poverty. He'll begin as a lecturer in sociology at the University of Vermont this fall.